Hi, my name is Ren Levy. Welcome back to Malicious Life in collaboration with Cyberism. The New York Times published an expose on the Tatak mobile messenger application on December 22nd, 2019. The article suggested in so many words that Tutok was a covered spyware application. The developers behind Tutok did not take kindly to that accusation. Giacomo Ziani was one of those developers. Born in the Mester borough of Venice, he has a degree in economics and international management. Following his years as a student, Giacomo, more commonly referred to as Jack, worked largely in project management and marketing. In 2019, he became the face of Tutok. And he's a good face to have. He's a handsome young man, thin, nice hair, and the perfectly shaved 5 o'clock shadow. Let's just say, if he were trying to sell me covered spyware, I'd probably get too lost in his pretty brown eyes to figure it out. In response to the Time investigation, Jack gave a written interview to Khalij Times, the English-language news branch of the United Arab Emirates government. In it, he denied that his app was anything other than a private, politically neutral startup venture. He suggested that any suspicion of wrongdoing might be motivated by just how popular his app was. Then, at a certain point in the interview, he was asked the following question. Quote, Are there any independent evaluations that can verify the app is secure? End quote. He responded confidently. Quote, the irony is that our accusers requested a technical analysis by a former NSA employee who concluded that TOTOC simply does what it claims to do and really nothing more. No spyware, no backdoors, and no malware. End quote. Okay, let's take a step back. Let's face it, if you've listened to our previous episode, you've probably concluded that TOTOC is in fact spyware. But, according to Jack, a former NSA employee had verified that it, quote, simply does what it claims to do. That's a pretty ringing endorsement, right? Who was this mysterious former NSA employee who proved Tutak's legitimacy? Well, when I was flattered, it means they're reading my research. In the last episode of our show, Patrick Wardle, a cybersecurity researcher and former NSA employee, said the following. If you look at the application with kind of blinders on, meaning you just look at the binary code or just look at the functionality of the application, it really, in a sense, is not doing anything massively wrong. Um, you know, it kind of oversteps, right? You know, it kind of maybe is a little aggressive about gathering the address book, um, perhaps using the location and other such things. But compared to like, a, you know, a piece of malware, it's essentially fully benign. Um, but again, I want to caveat that. That is when you're solely looking at the application um, kind of in a vacuum, not at the broader picture of, for example, who's behind said application. You probably didn't hear that as a ringing endorsement of TOTAC. Now, consider what would happen if I just made one or two small edits to that quote. Listen again. If you just look at the functionality of the application, it really, in a sense, is not doing anything wrong compared to like 
you know, piece of malware, it's essentially fully benign. See what happened there? The quote they took out was basically me saying, hey, this application does what it what it's designed to do um, and nothing more. But then in that same sentence, I went on to say, hey, this is the genius of the whole mass surveillance operation, right? You don't need any exploits. You don't need any backdoors. You don't need any malware. So the fact that they just took the first half of the state of my statement um, and, you know, and, and used it, I would argue, fully out of context, uh, in my opinion, really made them look even more guilty. Hi, I'm Bill Marzak. I am a senior research fellow at the Citizen Lab at the University of Toronto. I'm also a postdoctoral researcher in computer science at uh, UC Berkeley and the International Computer Science Institute in Berkeley. Citizen Lab is one of the world's premier cyber research institutions. Its reporting has contributed to the research we've done for our episodes on ISIS, China versus GitHub, and spyware. For this episode, Bill will act as our guide. Where Patrick figured out the what of TOTAC, it was Bill's investigative work that tied together the who and perhaps some of the why. Nate Nelson, our senior producer, asked Bill how did he come to work on this case. Well, um, it's actually kind of an interesting story. Um, you know, at, at Citizen Lab, we're very interested in looking at these sorts of apps which might have uh, security vulnerabilities or, or privacy vulnerabilities. So then when this TOTOC case came up, uh, we were contacted by uh, some, some individuals who felt that maybe this app was sort of a uh, spy app. Uh, or, you know, was designed for surveillance. Uh, so they said, hey, Citizen Lab, uh, can you guys take a look at this? The first part of Bill's investigation was probably the easiest. It didn't take a researcher of his talent to figure out that Giacomo Ziani and his co-founder, Long Ruan, weren't being completely straightforward with the public. There's no indication in my mind that, that you know, despite the, the reports Uh, that this is some sort of uh, uh, startup that is, you know, uh, sort of organically funded and these people, oh, just decided to make this app. Um, I think it's very unlikely that that's the case because there's just no prior discussion of this. Before co-founding Tutok, Long Ruan spent two years as the VP of marketing and then two more years as the chief operations officer for eCall, the app which Tutok acquired and largely used as its own. So these people was, had no previous association with the name Tutok. Uh, what they did have uh, was a previous association with Group 42. And Group 42 is interesting because Tutok was developed under the name Group 42 IM before it became named as TOTOC. On LinkedIn, Jack lists himself as having been the marketing and communications manager at Group 42 before co-founding TOTOC. Long's connection is less clear. At a certain point in 2019, Group 42 changed its name to Bridge Holding LTD. So in this case, the App Store listed a, a company called Breeze Holding, which seemed kind of weird. I mean, initially my first thought was, hmm, well, wait a minute. This is an Arabic name, and the address on the Google Play Store for Totok is in Singapore. So 
that's weird. Like, why is why is one from Singapore one have have this seemingly Arabic sounding name? Um, so I started, you know, digging in a bit more to Bridge, um, and I found they had an address in this um, economic free zone in the UAE. So like a separate uh, geopolitical entity inside the UAE that has its own, you know, ultimately UAE federal law is is enforced, but it has its own sort of business law, which is different from, from standard UAE law. So they have their own uh, website for, you know, registering the corporation and looking up corporation data. Uh, so I was able to, to use those sorts of websites and dig into Bridge. Uh, there was also another company called uh, Totok Holding, uh, which you know had its own set of of, of uh, directors and investors and all this, um, so so that's sort of how I started was looking at okay well um, I know the address I know that this corporation should be registered on this website uh, what does the website say about who owns it who operates it and, and who might be behind it uh, so I, I, as I started digging more and more I started uncovering like a web of indiv- individuals and companies. This web of individuals and companies was terribly complex. Trying to understand who's really behind Tutok is a little like trying to figure out who farted on a crowded bus. Oh man, what is that smell? Oh, it's like somebody had some bad falafel in here. I think it's the guy with the microphone. The smell is diffuse enough that a lot of people could have done it, and whoever actually did do it will do their best to play it off as if they didn't. Uh, excuse me, excuse me. Yeah, that's that's my stop. Thanks. Ultimately, though, every path that begins with Totok ends with one very rich and powerful man at the heart of the Emirati state. His name is Sheikh Tahnun bin Ziyad Al Nayhan. So Sheikh Tahnun bin Zayed Al Nayhan is a, a member of the UAE royal family. He's a son of the founder of the UAE, uh, Sheikh Zayed, and um, he's the brother of uh, Mohammed bin Zayed, who is the powerful crown prince of, of Abu Dhabi. Um, so he's very well connected in terms of UAE power circles. Tahnun is exceptionally powerful. A precise analogy is tough, because here in the Western world, we try to avoid nepotism in politics. The closest American equivalent to Tahnun, maybe, would be Hillary Clinton. Uh, I think it was in 2016, Sheikh Tahnun was given the title of National Security Advisor for the UAE. Um, and it's been reported, I think it was in the Washington Post and, and some other places, that he's a fairly senior role in the UAE intelligence apparatus. Um, interestingly, uh, he, he sort of first came to light to us and other security researchers back in 2012, actually, when an activist in the UAE was targeted with spyware. And it turned out that the spyware that was used was purchased from an Italian company hacking team, but it connected back in the UAE to the offices of Sheikh Tahnun bin Zayed Al Nahyan. (laughs) 
Tachnun has a long and established history in large-scale cyber spying, including having a business relationship with Hacking Team, one of the most notorious spyware companies we discussed at length in our How is Spyware Legal episode. When Hacking Team themselves were hacked and all these documents were leaked, we saw that this entity... Uh, headed by Sheikh Tahnoun, which was doing the surveillance, uh, had purchased licenses to spy on a thousand people simultaneously. So there was probably a much larger scale of this surveillance that he was involved in, which we, we don't know about. Um, and that was, of course, before his promotion to, quote unquote, national security advisor. Tahnoun was the centerpiece of the TOTAC operation. But the only reason we know this is because of Bill's investigative work. His name wasn't to be found anywhere near the name Tutak. The name publicly registered as director of Bridge Holding was Hassan al-Rumaythi. So Hassan al-Rumaythi uh, was listed on the, um, uh, the Abu Dhabi global market, which is this economic free zone where Tutak was registered. He was listed as the director of Tutak. I found his voter registration record, and his voter registration record gave his birthday. Uh, and there was also a series of news articles about a Hassan al-Rumethi who was a mixed martial arts fighter and a jiu-jitsu fighter. Uh, and it listed his birthday, which matched the voter record. Uh, and it was described in these reports that the jiu-jitsu MMA, Hassan al-Rumethi, was the adopted son of Sheikh Tahnoun bin Zayed al-Nahyan. In other words, as a kid, Sheikh Tahnoun had adopted, I think the story goes, he had adopted some uh, war orphans uh, from the UAE, uh, and uh, Hassan al-Rumethi was one of them. And then, of course, the jiu-jitsu connection comes in because Sheikh Tahnoun is the big uh, jiu-jitsu guy. He's the one who brought jiu-jitsu to the Middle East. Um, and uh, so it makes sense that Hassan al-Rumethi would be you know, trained in, in jiu-jitsu as he was growing up. Uh, so, so Hassan al-Rumethi, the director of Brige Holding, the developer of Totak, is the adopted son of Sheikh Tahnoun. Al-Rumethi, probably, has never actually directed a company in his life. But as one member of a large royal family, and then adopted one at that, he was a useful signatory that allowed Tahnoun's name to stay out of public record. The final member of Tahnoun's inner circle that's important to mention here is Hamal al-Shamsi, his PR director and the man listed as sole director of the holding company which connected Jack Ziani to Longruan. Group 42. I know, I know, this is getting really complicated. So let's go back and look at the wider picture again. You know, sort of in the diagram, we have, we have Sheikh Tahnoun at, at the top because he's the, the guy that ties this all together. And then we have three sort of entities, which three corporate entities, which are linked to the Totalk app. There's Brige, uh, which, as I mentioned, is the uh, developer listed on the, the iPhone app store. Um, then there is Totak Holding Company or Totak Technology Company, excuse me, which is um, linked to Totak because the name Totak Technology Company appears in uh, uh, SSL certificates used by the code. Um, so this company is clearly linked to Totak. Um, and then there's also Group 42, which is linked um, by virtue of the uh, Group 42 IM app, which then got apparently rebranded as Totak. Do you see what's going on here? Companies and parent companies and firms and partnerships. It's like when a hacker routes their connection to a target machine through different countries and service providers. 
the corporate structure supporting Tutak involved at least half a dozen real companies, shell companies and intelligence groups, name changes and rebrandings, with the individuals who actually operated the app being hidden behind other individuals, given sinecure jobs and ponied around to the public as the supposed developers. But the point of all this wasn't just to hide Tahun's name. The real reason to go through all this problem was to hide one crucial breadcrumb. The breadcrumb was Group 42. Probably the same team of people was developing Group 42 as developing Totok. Um, so it was kind of interesting because Group 42 is an um, uh, artificial intelligence company. And in fact, Group 42 it appears received this uh, unit, which used to be a unit of dark matter, a, a UAE government defense contractor, intelligence contractor. Group 42 had direct connection to dark matter, a known government intelligence organization. Dark matter wasn't just a government entity, it was a notorious government entity. Think of it like the UAE's NSA. It no longer exists, in name at least, but only because it was discovered to be a hub for criminal offensive cyber operations. There was this incident sparked by a report in Reuters about dark matter, um, which caused the UAE authorities to apparently um, seize and reorganize dark matter, the intelligence contractor, and, and you know, send its various units to various other companies. We've just gone down a long, winding path. To review, Totak, owned by Brige Holding, under the adopted son of Sheikh Taknoun, branched off from Group 42 under Tahun's PR manager, who is largely comprised of government hackers. In other words, Totak is run by one of the country's most powerful government officials and developed by some of the country's most powerful current or former government contracted hackers. So if you're a government that wants to surveil a large portion or a large percentage of your population, it's very difficult or very costly, rather, to procure these remote exploits and then use them on scale. Uh, because these exploits, one, are, as I mentioned, very expensive, and two, they don't often scale as well. A far better approach, and again, this is kind of the genius of this two-talk operation, is that you can really write a essentially fully legitimate application that you know, on paper is doing nothing wrong, right? It's just a chat application, which means, yeah, it needs access to your contacts and it provides local weather. So yeah, that means it needs access to your uh, geolocation. So it can, you know, provide weather updates, wink, wink. Uh, you know, it needs access to your photos so that you can send photos to your users or your friends. It needs access to the camera and the microphone. Just think about how much somebody could learn about you with access to your phone through WhatsApp or Facebook. We're talking about contacts, all ongoing and saved messaging history, login data, camera and microphone access, and probably your location at any given time of the day. The Emirati government didn't target mobile devices by chance. They knew how powerful it is to crack somebody's phone, even when compared to, say, a typical remote access Trojan aimed at somebody's laptop. 
Here's Roy Ackerman, VP of Product Incubation at CyberReason. So, you know, once you're getting an access to mobile, first of all, there's the tracking you and learning more about you in order to extort or do something else. Uh, there's the usage of the mic, of course, that can record every conversation around there. And then we've learned that hackers more trying to uh, look at the storage of device in order to get, you know, the most inter- interesting pieces of data out of it. So, for example, think about yourself. You're opening a specific attachment okay, in your email. 95% of customers or like of, of the users doesn't really know where this attachment is being saved. You just like left them until they run out of, uh, I don't know, storage and then they delete it all. So all the pieces of important data that you have is there and the hacker can actually get access to it. More than that, you have all the payment methods and all the PIN codes and the, 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 the passwords that are stored there. And you know that now, nowadays most of the apps are cloud-based. So a lot of access can be gained or a lot of types of access can be gained by just like simply uh, collecting these types of uh, privileges from the device and then use them externally in order to get the access to, to the cloud accounts. Now, these are the basic things. Let's move to the second stage of a more sophisticated hacker that trying to use the, uh, the mobile, the mobile um, uh, device as a helping point to the entire life of the user. So think about you as a Gmail customer or even you know, a bank app customer, user. You lost your password. You're trying to reset it. There are several security questions that are quite basic, but then the bank system actually sends you a a text message or an email uh, with a new pin code that will, and a link that will allow you to reset your password. Since the hacker is already on the device, he can actually use it in order to restore or reset the password and then regain access from another, another way, okay, or another place. When a hacker have access to your phone while you're connected to the organization, he can use your phone like he has his own laptop, okay, hooked to the jack of the wall. He can scan the network, he can impact the network traffic, hijack sessions, redirect sessions, infect machines that are trying to communicate outside uh, the network or even inside the network. Tutok represents a major step forward in government cyber espionage, and it positions the Emiratis as world leaders in this field. If it was indeed Sheikh Taknoun bin Zayad al-Nayhan who orchestrated this ingenious plan to hide a spyware in plain sight and convince the people to download and use it even though everybody suspects it is spyware, then perhaps we can see in it Sheikh Taknoun's appreciation for Jiu-Jitsu. After all, one of the main principles of Jiu-Jitsu is using your opponent's force against themselves, rather than using your own. Tutak is hardly the UAE's first venture into spyware. It maintains a significant cyber ops apparatus responsible for deploying even more sophisticated mobile exploits than TOTOC and supporting some of the most egregious human rights abuses of the past decade. But the best part? They got it all 
from the Americans. Coming up in part three of our three-part series on mobile security, UAE human rights crimes and the Americans carrying them out. That's it for this episode. Thanks for listening. Part 3 of the Two Talk mini-series will air in a few days. And until then, if you wish to binge on some older episodes of Malicious Life, I don't know, maybe you're stuck at home because of the coronavirus or something, you can head on to our website, malicious.life, where you'll find all of our past episodes, including all full transcripts. Follow at Malicious Life on Twitter or me at at Ranlevy, that's R-A-N-L-E-V-I, for updates on new episodes and interesting discussions on topics and issues we cover on the podcast. You can also suggest interesting topics for future episodes via Twitter or email at ran at ranlevy.com. Malicious Life is produced by PI Media. As I like to remind you from time to time, our speciality in podcasting is handling complicated, technical, or challenging topics in fun and interesting ways. So if you or your organization are interested in dipping your feet in the world of podcasting and are asking yourselves, how do we make topic X interesting and engaging for our potential listeners? That's why we're here. Reach out to me at ran at ranlevy.com. Thanks again to Cyber Reason for underwriting the podcast. Learn more at cyberreason.com. Bye-bye. Oh my God. CK Music. 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 Music.